Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On April 4th, see me at the Comedy Shop at the Regency House in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. April 9th to the 12th, Laugh Out Loud Comedy Club in San Antonio, Texas. April 18th, the Brokerage Comedy Club in Belmore, New York. April 19th, the live Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with Louis Black at Caroline's on Broadway. So to get tickets or find out more information, go to www.gilbertgottfried.com. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santopadre, and today we're going to be talking to an old friend of mine from the comedy club days, and I've known her for years. She's gone on to write seven Oscar telecasts, as well as some classic TV shows that you may have heard of. We laugh about the old days talked about everyone from Larry Raglan to Frank Sinatra, and I even got to sing a little bit. So enjoy our conversation with comic and writer, Carol Eiffel. Spring training is underway, and that can only mean one thing. Baseball season is almost here. And there's never been a better time to check out DraftKings.com, America's favorite daily fantasy baseball site where you could win huge cash prizes every day. Daily Fantasy means no season-long commitments, no slogging through a long season to collect your winnings, just instant cash, instant gratification. It's like a new season every time you play. Simply pick two pitchers and eight position players. Stay under the salary cap, and you could be on your way to a massive payday. In fact, DraftKings has already crowned over a dozen millionaires. Hundreds of thousands of fantasy sport fans just like you have cashed in at DraftKings, and now it's your turn. Hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code GILBERT, that's G-I-L-B-E-R-T, GILBERT, to play for free in the $100,000 Fantasy Baseball Contest on opening day. First place takes home $10,000. Use promo code GILBERT for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. 
Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week is a comedian, an Emmy-nominated writer of Modern Family, The Larry Sanders Show, Saturday Night Live, and a little obscure show called Seinfeld. She's also written seven Academy Award telecasts and has worked with comedic geniuses like Larry David, Chris Rock, Gary Shandling, Steve Martin, and Gilbert Gottfried. Her <laughs> career has run the gamut from emceeing at male strip clubs to opening for the legendary Frank Sinatra. Her new book is entitled How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying, Lessons from a Life in Comedy. Let's welcome to the show our friend, the very funny Carol Leifer. Thank you, thank you all, thank you, take your seats, thank you. <laughs> Welcome, Carol. <laughs> How's it going, guys? Good. Thanks for doing it. Now, I think we've met once or twice, haven't we? Oh, my God. <laughs> Gilbert, do you know how far we go back? We literally go back. You know, here's what's so funny about my, you know, reminiscences of you. <laughs> Most of my, when I picture you, it's yeah. literally by the velvet rope at catch a million times in the late 70s, early 80s. I always think of that's when we spent the most time together. Yeah, it was. And, and what I remember, too, about those days, like in the early days of trying to get on at mm-hmm. the clubs, was like the MC would come out and, and sometimes <laughs> look around the room and go, oh, God, we've got a full crowd left still, and there's nobody here. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but you know when I think back I didn't even you know I forgot about that like at the other clubs the improv and the comic strip there were time slots you were on at 9.50 then at 10.10 then at 10.30 like a catch it was just like this free for all feeding frenzy you know the MC would come out and it'd be like oh maybe you'd be next or maybe you'd be picked three hours from then I mean it was crazy <laughs> <laughs> and and who what let's let's talk about some of the people hanging out in the bar with us. Yes. Okay. They, well, Larry David. Right. Larry and, David, who you also had to be sure if you were maybe following him, you didn't even know if you were following him, you had to be sort of in the room because he would could bolt off the stage at any moment <laughs> from any rude, you know, anything perceived as rude or something with the crowd that he didn't like, he would just bolt. So you had to go on next. Yeah, it's the, like if if someone was, like, biting their nails or something, it would bother him <laughs> and he'd start screaming well, we, at we, them. We talked stage. to Susie Esman, Carol, and she said that uh, one, night, one night in the club, somebody he was doing a joke about a bungalow, and somebody said, what's a bungalow? And he walked off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> That is exactly the kind of thing that would have irked Larry. Exactly. And, and of course, uh, another unknown comic, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, used to be. Yes. There. Yes. Although I don't remember him being around Catch a Rising Star that much. You know, he was such a comic strip act and identified with that club and really ran the place. I mean, I think what's so funny about, you know, having a long show business career like we all have is that, 
you know, when I started at the comic strip, when I passed the audition with Paul Reiser and Rich Hall the same night in 1977, wow. and Jerry was the MC. You know, he was already a star there. I mean, he'd only been doing it a year longer than us, but he was already like an MC, which was like a big deal, and could pass people on the auditions. You know, he was really this big macher, you know, only doing it for a year. But, um, yeah, he wasn't really as cat- at catch as much as the other, um, other people that we know. Like, oh, Rita Rudner was also hanging around then, too. And I remember with the comic strip, he had such control over that place that every single comic at the comic strip would their delivery would be like this. <laughs> <laughs> Was he bothered by your impression? You've alluded to that yeah, in the past. I, Cause I, I used to like listen sometimes just through the wall you could hear it. <laughs> and and I wouldn't even see who was on, but I'd hear <laughs> but did Jerry ever You've find done a- that impression? Did you ever do that on? Um, well, I'm trying to think. You've done the, your Jerry impression places, right? Oh, it's yes. So spot on. One yeah. time on Howard Stern, uh, we called up his answering machine, <laughs> and and I spoke as his long lost son for about an hour until he he ran out of time. Oh my God. Who else was in the clubs in those days? Who else was was sitting around with Larry and Jerry and and who were the names that 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 people might not be not know might not be household names? Um, who you mean the people who weren't yeah. like um yeah like who a, were big then yeah like like uh, Gilbert uh, talked about Larry Raglan for about an hour with Bob Saget. <laughs> yes, Larry Raglan was a very you know he was a very big you know entertainer. I mean, like that was great about performing in nightclubs like we did. It wasn't just a comedy club. It was, you know, singers and Larry was a singing impressionist. And as Gilbert knows, you know, we all have our tricks of what makes people respond and, you know, get big, you know, audience reaction. And he went up and sang and did all these. And and before uh, anyone forgets, I won't do the entire thing, but two Day I thought I saw a dummy in the window. In the window. But it but was, it was you. you. <laughs> what is the dummy in the window song? Did anybody ever figure out what that meant or what it was about? <laughs> was it only known to him? Bob Saget was on this show, <laughs> yeah. and he he, yeah. he he demanded I sing the entire song, which I did. I I heard it so many times. And it would kill every <laughs> single time, right? Why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and but do, you know what? Oh, go ahead. The, the other thing about, you know, people entertaining at the club was that, you know, Pat Benatar was discovered at Catch Rising Star. And I have this amazing memory of, you know, going online um in the going in line on a Monday afternoon to get my number to go on that night at Catch Rising Star. And I remember while we were all sitting there in the hot sun waiting, you know, to get our number, Pat Benatar breezed into the club because she already was, you know, somebody with a name and really on her way to becoming famous. And she just turned to the line and she said, hang in there, guys. It really works. 
Wow. <laughs> you know, like the whole the whole system, like, it worked for me, so I know it can work for, well, maybe one or two of you, you know, but it was like, um, you know, this whole kind of uh, assembly line of trying to uh, become a comedian and be an entertainer, but, you know, I think that was interesting time, too, because I think, as we all know, too, it was really good to follow a singer, you know, because they kind of got the audience up and in a good place, and you didn't have to compete with anybody others, you know, anybody else's kind of comedic energy or if it matched yours or not, you know? And, and I remember Pat back then, Pat Benatar was like, you know, this cute little lounge singer. She was buttoned uh-huh. down and <laughs> very conservative. And Rick Newman wound up managing her for a while. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. after that. Yeah. Yeah, for a really, really long time. I mean, she just, like, took off. But then, like, um, remember, oh, God, Joni. There was oh, Joni Peltz. Joni Peltz, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> she used to sing, don't rain on my parade. And... <laughs> but it was really, you know, she was like somebody who you just, you know, she captivated the audience. You really just thought, you know, it was exciting because you were always thinking this person could be the next big thing, you know? Every single singer back then and every single club uh, would sing, you know, everyone's, uh, everyone has its season, everyone has its time. <laughs> It was the time of those kind of songs. <laughs> Don't cry out loud. <laughs> a little Miss L- Melissa Manchester. And I remember right. there was one singer who would only appear at Catch, and I think named Bill Maru. <laughs> <laughs> what was her name? Bill Maru. Oh, Bill. Okay. He, he became big. and But he used to sing, make me laugh. And make me cry, make me live until I die. That's the way, baby, tenderly. Let me love you forever. I'm so happy that there is someone who'll give me love in return. Ba 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 ba. God! I don't remember that guy. Did he really um like you know sing the entire like yes. song and people liked it? Yeah, and that was the middle section. Ba 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 ba. Oh my God! Wait, Carol, what about? Me. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, Lenny. Lenny Schultz. Schultz. Oh, Lenny Schultz. Well, I know him, yeah. Yeah, who used to just yeah. be like nuts and he'd... Right, crazy. Didn't he wear a chicken suit, Lenny oh, Schultz? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and what, didn't people in the audience yell out, go crazy, Lenny? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and I think one time he told me he used to travel with a midget and one time he picked the midget up and held him upside down and jerked him off on stage. Great. <laughs> It's <laughs> ahead of his time. Oh my God! Now, well, I would have paid to see that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, Carol, tell us about how you started doing it the first time. How you started? Because I think Gilbert, you started at fifteen. Yeah. So by the time Carol took oh the my. stage for the first oh, time, wow. you'd already been at it. Yeah, I, I was already Georgie Jessel. <laughs> <laughs> Well, 
Well, you know, I didn't know anything about these clubs, these nightclubs, because I was just this college student, and I went to school with Paul Reiser in upstate New York in Binghamton, and Paul was another city person who knew about these clubs, and he was doing it in high school, because he went to Stuyvesant, and when we went to college, he was like, oh, I like to go to this nightclub, and I like to go on, you know, during the summer, and, you know, these are you know, there weren't comedy clubs that are like, who's this guy who goes on nightclubs? Like, who's this Vic Damone? Like, <laughs> you know, shows up at nightclubs? Like, what is this? And then I went and I watched him at Catch. And, you know, Paul is such a natural, right? From the beginning, he was so good at it. And I saw this kind of world of people who like, oh, wow, you want to be a comedian? Well, you know, get a number and go on and you're a comedian. And that you know, I always tease Paul that if I never met him, I don't know if I would have found that exact route to performing and, and being a comedian, but it, you know, it's what I've always loved about stand-up comedy and, you know, continue to that, like, it's not complicated. It's not like if you, like, if you want to be an actor, you know, you got to get an agent, you got to go to classes and you got, you know, it's like, ugh, you know, we're all like, I think also impatient people. And I like this, you know, this immediate route to doing what you wanted to do. And as you know, we all know you only get good at doing this by doing it 3 million times, you know, that that's what's so weird about it now, because I always think what got me into the business and what kept me there in those early years was out-and-out stupidity. <laughs> you, you didn't realize the amount of work and and your chance of making it was one in a zillion. Right. Now, I, Gilbert, I don't even know how, how did you hear as a 15-year-old about these nightclubs and was the first one Catch? Yeah, I'm curious myself. Yeah, I Catch, oh, Catch hadn't opened yet. Oh my uh, God! Yeah, yeah. It's 1942. <laughs> yeah, there was like a Chinese laundry there or something. He did stand up on the GI Bill. I, 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 I was this kid who would yeah. just, I would do imitations of actors I saw on TV, and I was joking around and stuff. And finally, someone said to my sister, uh, "You know, uh, there's this place, the Bitter End." Where they have open mic night, they called it uh-huh. nanny night. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and and I went there with my two older sisters on the train, and uh, I just put my name down on the list and then went on. Did mainly imitations. So you, oh my god, as a fifteen-year-old. Yeah, you didn't really have wow, a comedy so, act. No, and I was doing like you know Humphrey Bogart and Boris Karloff, showing that even then my act was really dated. <laughs> so. <laughs> And it hasn't it hasn't gotten any more relevant since. <laughs> so wait a minute, how did they introduce you? Like, uh, oh, here's a kid who wants to come on. Like, come on, kid, or was yeah, pretty much. They would just see the name and they go, okay, our next performer is so and so. Right. Then yeah, then I'd go out and yeah, so it was at the bitter end. Wow. And how did it go over the first time that you went on? Another thing, I think. I always say it, but it's true. I I don't know if I did well or if I was too stupid to know I bombed. Uh-huh. But maybe I was in that much of a daze. So I, I would do it again after that. Right. You know, it's um so funny because the first time I went on a catch, 
I had like the perfect spot. Like David Say was the MC, and I went on fifth. I still remember that. And I think I followed somebody who bombed, you know, which was always great because it's like it's only going to be better than somebody (laughs) bombing. Yes. And I went on and, you know, I had a pretty practiced five minutes and it killed. And then I just came off stage and I said to Paul, like, I just thought like, wow, okay, so like I guess I'll be on the Tonight Show like Uh, a week from now. Like, (laughs) didn't realize like the next time I went on, you know, I ate it and it was horrible and people were – you know, heckling me, and it was like, oh, it's not at all like this first perfect time. It's so funny that way, because I know with me it was the same thing. I'd go on stage, do a great set, and then I, oh, well, that's it. I'm I'm taking over for Charlie Chaplin as the legendary comedian, and then I'd go on the next night and completely bomb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you remember your first joke, Carol? Was it was it the trident gum joke was one of your first jokes? Yes. I had a joke about uh, another one, you know, another commercial that's, mm-hmm. you know, nobody uh, would remember now. But, um, you know, trident gum, they say that four out of five dentists surveyed recommend sugarless gum. You know, who's this fifth guy? Uh, what's he <laughs> recommending? You know, rock candy and jujubes, you yeah. know, or I had always different, you know, maple, gargle with maple syrup or whatever, you know. But, um, but you know, when I, I have my first five minutes on tape, which is really outrageous, oh, no. but I still oh, have that cool. tape. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I listen to it now like it's my daughter doing stand-up. But, you know, we know from uh, – <laughs> years of watching audition night, you know, if you have something that's pretty practiced and pretty has, you know, one or two okay jokes, you know, the audience would always be with them because uh, they're, they're always rooting for someone who was halfway sane, you know, and wasn't like a crazy person off the street who came up, you know, and got on audition night. Now, so I always got good feedback right away as I'm sure, you did too, Gilbert, right? Well, sometimes I got great feedback. Other times the, the audience would scream at me and, like, get their jackets on. I think, yeah. I think the first time I saw you, Carol, you were doing a bit about uh, Bobby Goldsboro and, and Richard mm-hmm. Harris singing MacArthur Park. Yes, yes. I did a lot of um, musical uh, takeoff, things like that. Um, you know, I just... It really, the thing that was so great for me about stand-up right away was that it was like you could take things that you were telling your friends were funny things and, like, put them on stage, and it's like, oh, and this is what kind of makes up your act. Okay, so, you know, I always tell people who are thinking about going into comedy, like, it really should be in your wheelhouse already. You know, this shouldn't be something that you have to really work so hard at that it's... um something you want to try to make a living at. Like, it really needs to be second nature to mm-hmm. do this kind of stuff because um, it it really was that kind of thing. And, t- you know, to watch Paul put his act together at the same time. I mean, I'm really impressed, you know, Gilbert, that, well, your sisters brought you, but that you kind of went out on your own with this at such a young age. You know, I always say to people, like, I don't know if I were – had been alone if I would ever had the courage to go to these clubs without, you know, Paul as my um, friend there, you know, experiencing this with me. Now, was Paul ever more than just a friend with you? Yes, I dated Paul. 
Yes, he was my college boyfriend. <laughs> Just say that like Cloris Leachman in, uh, in Young Frankenstein. He was my boyfriend. <laughs> there we go. Now, you, you came from a funny family, Carol. I mean, to talk a little bit in the, in the book is touch, touching to read Can about you. Can you describe Paul Reiser oh, in bed? <laughs> oh, God. He's off the Did he go? He's oh, off the track. Oh, that's good. That's, uh, oh, yes. Yes. Grab my bolt. <laughs> Your your Seinfeld is much better yeah, than your I know. riser. I could I'm never, right I could never quite get the riser down. He's yeah. I would think he is not uh, easy to get. He's but, got um, judging going. I've never seen anyone do Paul Riser. Yeah, it's tough. It's a tough one. No. Yeah, but, but, um, but you know, I grew dad. up. My parents were comedy uh, freaks. Really, my dad was because he really had wanted to be a comedian and. So when I grew up, and I think it's really kind of what's sad about kids growing up today is, you know, when I grew up, you were captive to what your parents, to your parents' record player, you know. So I know every word to Fiddler on the Roof as a result, (laughs) but also to, you know, comedy albums. Like, my parents played that 2,000-year-old man, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks album, I mean, till it probably was scratched out and we had to get another copy at Corvette's. You know, uh, Corvettes. <laughs> I had a really good comedy education in the house because they listened to that. They listened to Vaughn Meter, the first family album. Sure, sure. You know, my dad had these Mickey Katz records, you know, who's Jennifer, who's Joel Gray's father, who right. was in vaudeville. Sure. And um, you got to work I with Jennifer it, later. And uh, it's like, you know. I did. Yeah. Boy, Frank, you're on everything. Oh, my God. Um, and, and Mickey would sing, how much is that pickle in the window? <laughs> that was sure. He's one of, how much is that pickle in the window? <laughs> did he have a Davy Crockett? Didn't he parody the famous Davy Crockett song, too? The King oh, that's of the right. That's Duvin the one we Crockett. had. Yeah. I, we, I listened yes. to Mickey Katz and Alan Sherman. I wasn't even Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alan Sherman was, you know, giant, really, really, I mean, at the time. Yeah, his was Hello and, Mata, um, Hello Fada. My son, right. the folk singer. But I think we really grew up in a fantastic time because of that, because now, you know, having a kid of my own, he's not captive at all to what I'm playing in the house. He listens, to, you know, he's got his own headphones. He listens to whatever he wants, you know, and I think especially if you grew up, with parents, you know, with good taste. Um, I look back now and I feel really lucky that I was held captive to their, you know, whatever they played in the house. I I remember, like, back then, TV had, like, three stations. And it's like, you'd watch these shows and, you know, you had to watch what was on. Right. And, (laughs) And it's like, so you'd watch a variety show and in order to see, like, maybe the rock group or uh, ventriloquist, you had to sit through the other stuff. <laughs> yeah, and you yeah, realize that a lot of times the other stuff wasn't that bad. No. <laughs> and you actually enjoyed it and learned stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, was... because look at all the great comedians that were on Ed Sullivan, and you had to sit through, you know, the guys in tights uh, doing their acrobatic yeah. <laughs> stuff from and there used to be so many old movies on TV. Back yes, then, they weren't yes. even that old. That's the funny thing. The million-dollar movie. Yes. Right, right. 
And I still remember, you know, the theme, the theme song from Channel 7 to listen to that, right? With the guy and the, the director in the chair spinning around in the oh, shot. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and the, the 4.30 movie. With the late night <laughs> movie was da 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 the syncopated da, clock. Da, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the Channel 7 movie of the week. <laughs> Which I found out years later was a Burt Bacharach score. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was wow. Dun 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 da 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 Very good. The million dollar movie I think was Tara's theme from Gone with the Wind. Oh yes, yes. Oh right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the oh this is what we obsess about on the show every week. There was a news station that used to use the. Cool Ham Luke. Cool Are you thinking of that? Sing. Oh, yes. Yeah, very good. Uh-huh. Very <laughs> I remember good. I saw that Cool Ham Luke once, and I was like, <laughs> I can't believe they stole the Channel 7 news thing. <laughs> now, now, we worked together, among other things, on a TV show. Oh, my God, that's right. The Toast of Manhattan. Yes, which I remember. Yes. I remember the song. Do you remember the song? To the toast no. of Manhattan. Okay. <laughs> Please, regale me. Okay. <laughs> you you don't choice. have to ask. It's the toast of Manhattan, the toast of Manhattan. So this must be Sunday. The toast of Manhattan, the toast of Manhattan. And here's our own Freddy. <laughs> Every Sunday, every Sunday, with lots and lots of variety, it's the Toast of Manhattan. <laughs> you remember the theme song from a pilot? Yes, it, a it was an unaired pilot. pilot. Did it air? That is outrageous a that totally you remember fa- that. Now, wait a second. I remember because it was, you know, unlike Rain Man with dates. I remember yeah. it was the spring of 1982. And so I was already living out in... Um, California. Did they fly you out to be in the yes, Toast they, of Manhattan, they, Gilbert? They, they flew me, Paul Reiser, right. out, and and they. I think we were all staying at like some housing. Development. Bob Nelson. It was Oakwood. Yeah, I remember Nelson, that. Yeah. Yep. And yes, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I I remember too. I was playing a character on this show who was like some showbiz manager. And they said, well, how do you see him? And I said, well, he's kind of a middle-aged guy. And then uh, the producers and makeup men got together, and this middle-aged guy uh, became like a scene out of The Mummy. You know? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. They put a bald wig on you. I remember that. And all these, uh, you know, uh, uh, all those, like, glue-on, like, prosthesis. Right, right, Cheeks yes. And chin and neck and... What was the premise of And the of funny it? glasses. Oh, yeah, and it was like, I, I I, would have to come in, like, three hours before everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Now, Carol, in your book, you say that you went you went right up to Barry Levinson, and you told him that you loved him in High Anxiety, and he was flattered. And you, you, do you think that helped you get the part? Yes, I do. You know, many of the things that I cover, Frank, in my book <laughs> called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying. I'm holding it up. Um, <laughs> you know, I really do think that um, so much of, you know, when you're a true fan of comedy like I am, um, you know, I think it always helps to share your enthusiasm with people because uh, – 
people are people. And now I, you know, I've been in the business so long. I've been on the other side where people have auditioned for me. And, you know, when you tell someone that you really like them in a very small, minimal, nothing part in a movie and you can recite their lines and all that kind of thing, it definitely has an effect on them. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, how can it not when you're a fan like that? So I, one of my things that I try to tell, you know, I'm really getting fantastic feedback from very young people about my book and I'm really flattered because I really do share a lot of these kind of things that I think along the way help you if you want to have not only a career in show business but in anything and something like that is like you know tell people when you like them and stuff you know it's like don't be afraid to do that kind of thing who doesn't love that you know and I it's funny when you mentioned sitting on the other side of the auditioning process And the times I've done that and watched people audition, you get a different perspective. Because when you're auditioning, you just think the other people there are scumbags making (laughs) your life difficult. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. I know. And, and, And when you're on the other side, you really see that the thing that always really sells someone to you is when they don't give a shit, you know, when they show up and they do their work and it's not that, that kind of desperation that I know that I always you know, would bring into most auditions. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, this anxiety and like, Oh God, I really want to get this, you know, and you find that the people who audition and kind of have it, you know, roll up their back. I talk in my book actually about, you know, working at Seinfeld and Brian Cranston coming in to audition. You know, he played Tim Watley. Oh, the dentist. Um, the dentist right. on Seinfeld. And, you know, he was such a go-to comedy guy, which is amazing when you think about how talented he is, that he can also play such a dramatic actor so well. But, you know, he would come in and he would know his stuff and he would show up and do it great. And he would leave like, you know, it wasn't that kind of thing with me auditioning where the second I leave, I'm calling my agent like, do you get any feedback? Do you get any feedback? You know, do you know the thing? You know, just uh, people who do their work and can let it go, you know? And what I remember, too, watching people, audition and and I should really talk but um it's like sometimes a person would walk in and go oh hello I'm uh you know Joe Smith I'm gonna be auditioning for the part of so-and-so and you'd go oh you know I like this guy he seems like yeah. a nice guy and then when they they would act you know in right. quotes yes and it's like yes. that's when they lose all their warmth and everything <laughs> that you ever right. liked about them would stop. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that no. you went up to Barry Levinson and just told him that you were a fan of something that he wasn't really known for. I mean, it was a small part. He was a writer yeah. on the Carol Burnett show, and, and right. he, he wrote Injustice for All, which I don't think a lot of people know, the Pacino movie. With oh, his, oh mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, with yes. Val- Valerie Curtin. With but Jack he, Warden. But he, and... Right, but he's in High Anxiety. He has this wonderful cameo as the, as the bellhop yes. that stabs Mel Brooks with the rolled-up newspaper. So right. I, I think we forget, too, that those people that we're talking to are also fans who have probably wanted to do that in their careers to other people. And, and, right. And um, Barry Levinson used to be in a comedy team with Craig T. Nelson and and Rudy DeLuca. Rudy DeLuca, who's still Mm -hmm. around. Who's also in High Anxiety as the guy with the the assassin with the the metal teeth. Yeah. And Craig was in our pilot, The Toast in Manhattan, as Mm -hmm. an actor, and Rudy was one of the producers. Yes. But um, that's so funny what you were saying about auditioning. You know, the other thing, too, like that desperation kind of bleeding through, you know, 
when I've been on the other side and the people have auditioned and then they audition and they go, would you like to see it another way? It's like, oh. yeah, how about outside? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I have to tell how about you do it out there? I have, I have to tell just a quick story that I'm inspired by what you're saying, Carol. And I wasn't in the sitcom business very long. I was, on a, I was a, staffed on a show in L.A. called Lost on Earth that was completely uh, forgettable, except John O'Hurley was on it, Peterman oh. from Seinfeld, and Stacey uh-huh. Galena was on it, who you worked with on All Right, right Already. exactly, and yes. I wrote, I wrote an episode with my writing partner, and we actually had to sit in on casting. And a gentleman came in. He was an, an older actor, and he walked into the room, and I jumped up, and I said, Oh, Ralph Manza. Now, he was an obscure, because I'm an idiot savant for this stuff, but he was an obscure character actor that I had recognized from an old episode of Batman from the 60s. <laughs> and I made this guy's day. He told me he, nobody had ever recognized right? him by name in an audition. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of what I liked about living in L.A. You would recognize these people and get to make their day by mentioning their names. He told me he ran right. home to his wife. He stayed in touch with me for months. <laughs> oh, because, my God. Because he said I was the only person that ever recognized him on, on hundreds of auditions and ever actually right. bothered to know his name. So it made me feel uh-huh. good. John John Hurley, who was uh, John O'Hurley, John O'Hurley, yeah. who was Mr. Peterson, hey, Mr. Peterman, right? Peterman. He played Mr. Peterman. Peterman. He was yeah. on our show, oh, yeah. short-lived. And and I remember I was on an episode of a USA show called Silk Stockings, where sure. uh, we had right to Charlie tra- Brill was on that. Yes, That's he was right. husband. And yes. we had to trap down a killer, of course, who is for some reason, of course, in a strip club. And we wind up, I'm, I'm like fighting with John O'Hurley in the yeah. mud wrestling pit. <laughs> A very nice man, by the way. And then we shower together. So me and John O'Hurley, Mr. Mr. Peterman, uh, saw each other's uh, dicks. Uh, what? Oh. <laughs> wow. Well, that brings Look us at that. Here. Now we've landed on something. <laughs> See? <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it can work the other way in recognizing someone, you okay? So. You because... mean you cannot see someone's dick? <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm sorry. I moved on from the dick. Okay, so I remember. <laughs> I just got that. <laughs> I was shopping on 8th Street in the village once. I went into, I still use this luggage called the sports sack. Okay. So I walk into the Le sports sack store and this guy is helping me and he's very nice, but he's kind of like, he's very kind of like, you know, manly man, like very kind of hairy and kind of, you know, he's helping me. And I'm like, I know this guy from somewhere. Like I know it, I know him. And then it kind of finally hits me. And I say to him in the sports sack store, I said, wait a second, were you in quest for fire? <laughs> He's really hairy. And thank God it was Ron Perlman. You know, the guy who. Oh, sure. <laughs> but if you say to someone, were you in Quest for Fire? And the answer is no, I wasn't. That's a very bad question to ask. <laughs> That's hilarious. I, I heard that actor Luis Guzman. Oh, Luis uh, Guzman yeah. from uh, he's in all the yeah. uh, he, Paul Thomas Anderson. He movies. said when they were showing those cavemen commercials, <laughs> oh, uh, people used to come up to him all the time and go, "Hey, I love your new commercial." Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> but, but, 
Carol, this is a perfect segue since we're talking about character oh, wait, actors. But what happened? I have to go to the bathroom. Can I, <laughs> no, well, can I pee and come right back? We'll pause I swear, it. I cannot hold it We'll pause anymore. it. We'll, we'll pause it and edit it out. All right. Okay, I'll be back in, t- in one minute. You bet. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Okay, now now this shows uh, our ages here, because yes. when when we were getting ready to call you on the podcast, I said, "Hey, wait, I gotta go pee first. and I ran and peed, and then uh, we were talking to you, and Frank said, "Oh, I have to pee." <laughs> And now in the middle of the interview, you have to pee, proving that none of us are kids. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which leads me to your first sponsorship should definitely be either Flomax or Catheter. Do, do you know, Carol, that the first person, the first sponsor that approached us when we launched the show was Squatty Potty? <laughs> yeah, it, it was this. It was basically a plastic box. I kid you not. That you put your feet up on that lifts your I'm, legs. That makes taking a shit easier. Allegedly, I know scientifically. Because, you know, as a huge Howard Stern fan, there he you go. raved about it, raves about it, and then they became a sponsor. And I'm sure they're doing so incredibly well because of Howard's endorsement. Which also leads me to, I think, the funniest thing. I always laugh, Gilbert, that you do, that they play on the Stern Show constantly, is when you do your uh, rabbi with the fake uh, Hebrew. I swear to God, I lose it. side of dummy in the window <laughs> now because we, because we're, we were talking about character actors and we'll move we'll move it along tell us real quickly the harry dean stanton story from the book which is wonderful oh my god all right well you know along the lines of telling people that you are a fan of that you like their work complimenting their work because you're a true fan um i'm also a big proponent of you know being social and So many things have happened over my career really because of a connection, meeting someone at a party or some other thing. It's always good to be out and about, even if it's not naturally in your DNA to be social like that. I really think you have to kind of develop that skill Mm -hmm. absolutely to be in show business. So my partner, Lori, uh, we're skipping over now, a whole now, thing by from partner, my college boyfriend to my partner, Lori. But now, we'll come back. Um, now, by partner, this means someone you do uh, who's on first base. Yes, with, no, like, she's my law firm she, partner. She, we have a law firm <laughs> together. Oh, I, I thought it was more like Bud Abbott when you say your partner. <laughs> right. Yes, she's my comedy partner. She's kind of really the straight man, and I'm really the, you know, uh, the fall down, the clown, you know. But anyway, 
so my Harry Dean Stanton story. So anyway, she is always saying to me, say, you know, pushing me, say hello to that person. Oh, there's so-and-so go over and say hello. And uh, wonderful things have happened as a result of that momentary thing of like, Oh, I don't want to go over. And then you go over and it's, you know, fine. So we're at the Paul Simon concert at the Staples center in LA. And uh, I have great seats as a result of uh, being with CAA at the time. I, I mean, I have to really say, if you can ever be with a, a big agent, do it just for the perks of tickets <laughs> yeah. that you can get. And anyway, we're sitting there, and Lori's like, hey, turn around, like, a few rows behind us. She goes, there's Harry Dean Stanton. And I was like, oh, my God. And I turn around, and it's Harry Dean Stanton sitting there with Jack Nicholson. And I'm like, oh, my God. And Lori says, go over and say hello. And I'm like, what? She goes, remember you had dinner with him? And it's like, oh, my God, that's right. We went. We had gone to the Palm restaurant because Richard Belzer had invited. He's very good friends with Harry Dean Stanton. And he invited Jim Valley and Jonathan Schmock and Dom Irera and a bunch of comics uh, to eat with Harry Dean. And so, you know, we had gone to the Palm and we had had dinner and it was a, you know, it was like not even just a dinner. It was like a three hour adventure and drinking. And in the middle of the dinner, people started chanting mommy. Cause my comedy friends over the years have started to call me as a nickname, mommy. So we were chanting mommy and, you know, drinking and having a great time. And, and Lori was like, Oh, go over and say hello. So I muster up the courage, and I walk over, and I say, excuse me, Harry Dean, how are you? Uh, <laughs> remember me? It's Carol Leifer. And uh, he just turns to me, and very not in a welcoming way, shakes <laughs> his head, no. Like, no, I don't know you. So then I tried, and I wasn't crazy about this, I tried to kind of jog his memory. I said, remember, we had dinner recently at the Palm. It was... You know, Richard Belzer invited me, and it was all these comedy guys, and, and he just turns to me, and he's another really curt and not friendly no. So, uh, and Jack Nicholson, by the way, at this point, is just like a sphinx. He has the sunglasses <laughs> on. He's not even acknowledging that I'm speaking to the, Harry Dean, who's sitting right next to him. So then I get really desperate because I couldn't turn around and just leave then. I'm kind of... Uh, you know, recounting the entire dinner, like almost to the point of talking about the different breads that were in the bread basket on the table at the pond. <laughs> nothing is happening. I'm going, remember, people are shouting, mommy, mommy. And nothing. He's not turning anything. So finally, I had to accept defeat because this is getting ridiculous with the hole I was digging that became even bigger by every passing second. So I just kind of wrap it up by going, well, anyway, Harry Dean just thought I'd come over and say hello. So then I do the 180, turning around, the walk of shame. <laughs> Lori's head is bowed down because she could see that this did not go well. And as I'm walking back 100 yards later in the Staples Center, I hear Harry Dean go, I remember now. <laughs> <laughs> And I waved to him a hundred yards away, and that was it. What a character he is! I, I, yeah. I remember doing a movie called Jack and the Beanstalk, and in it was uh, Chris uh, Christopher Lloyd, uh-huh. who I've been the other. I've been doing voice work with all these years on Cyber Chase. And, well, wait a minute, which Christopher Lloyd, the uh, director, the, uh, Final the, Tap, uh, or the? Oh no, Freddie Re- Reverend actor. Jim. 
Uh, yeah, back to the future. Yeah, back to the future. And oh, right, taxi. right, right. Sorry, I'm thinking of right Chris Lloyd, the comedy. So writer. we okay. were two the two main voices on Cyber Chase for years, and then the other person in the movie was Katie Segal from uh-huh. uh, Married with Children, sure. who I was squeezed into a life raft with in that episode. And so I was happy to see the two of them, and I went over to the two of them. Neither one of them, I mean, you'd think I wandered in <laughs> off the street. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the only one, Carol. <laughs> right, right. But is that like the worst moment ever where you go over and you expect a somewhat, you know, even just a polite reception if they don't remember you? Of, oh, hi, how are you? Okay, and then, you know, whatever. And it's like the... No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, no, yes. I remember. I was Can you e- leave? I was expecting at least even a smirk of acknowledgement. <laughs> Not a hug or anything, but even just like, oh, <laughs> like that, you know, like right. a phony smirk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but nothing. Yeah, no, no it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to brave that. Carol, we have to get we'll get to Seinfeld as, as soon as we can, but let's talk real quickly about Saturday Night Live because neither you or Gilbert had a, a, a particularly memorable experience on on that right. show. Yes, yes. You were there for one well, season, the the Lawrence first season back in eighty five. It oh. was Lawrence uh, first season back after Dick Ebersol, uh, yes, handed over the reins again to Lauren and. You know, people are always like, what year did you work? And I always kind of call it um, the weird year because oh, yes. it had the strangest cast ever with, you know, Randy Quaid and Robert Downey Jr. and Joan Cusack and Lovitz and Dennis Miller yeah. and uh, Terry Sweeney. Sweeney. It was yeah. just oh, yeah, that, that, really the guy from uh, Breakfast Club. Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was such, you know, what I remember so clearly about it, too, is that, you know, at the end of the season, you know, SNL is this institution and 40 years and all of that. And, uh, you know, that at the end of that year, the show almost got canceled. It was that poorly received, you know. So um, it was really, you know, I'm sure like you, Gilbert, I feel like I would never trade my year there for for anything, I mean, because it is, you know, to have worked on this show, I I still, you know, cherish having gotten the opportunity, even though it was not an easy gig for me. But, um, you know, it's really wild to look back on, um, especially, you know, when I think back of thinking of writing, because I saw, you know, A. Whitney Brown when I was back at the 40th reunion and stuff, and, you know, people smoking in the offices and, you know, not having computers to write your sketches on, you'd write them in longhand on a, you know, yellow legal pad and hand it over to someone to write it up for you. I mean, you know, it's just wild. And I, it's so funny because for years I, I felt like this sense of shame, like people knew me from this horrible. But after a while, I totally forget and I get it mixed up like, you know, like cavemen and dinosaurs <laughs> right, together, right, right. you know. Or Luis Guzman yeah. and, and cavemen. Oh, yes, yes. What were you, and, 11 episodes? Uh, yeah, 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 that was pretty much it. And what's funny is I went to the Saturday Night Live uh, 40th uh, celebration. Yes, I saw you there, yes. And and uh, what, what was interesting, to, it was the first time I ever met Lorne Michaels. 
uh, and uh, he shook my hand, and I was kind of surprised that he was shaking my hand. He said, <laughs> well, you're, you're a brick in this wall. Oh, that's wow. kind of nice. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's really that's really amazing. I mean, I remember when you got SNL, that was really wild to, you know, have scored that gig, especially because, you know, Gilbert, we I really sucked. gotta think about <laughs> 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 They didn't cast a lot of um stand ups I mean they they put you and Eddie in the cast well in Piscobo too, but then they kind of like got rid of the stand ups and they didn't kind of really come back until like Dana Carvey in that year, you know? Yeah. It was it was a very and 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 with me it what was so awful, it was kind of like if in the middle of Beatlemania they got rid of John Paul George and Ringo and brought in four <laughs> other schmucks. <laughs> they hated us from the start. <laughs> they did. They they did, but you know um, it was great at the 40th to see, and I um, should have taken a picture of it, when you and Eddie and Tim Kazarinski were all together and uh, kind of hugging each other. It was really, really nice because you could really see as an outsider that, you know, when you share, a, you know, an experience like that, you really are kind of bonded in a way with someone that, you you know, nobody else knows about. And you could see it all these years later, how when you guys were together, how familiar it was. And and you see people you didn't work with, and you still have that connection. So it's all mm-hmm. a fraternity that you're all in, really. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Did yeah. you get anything no. on, Carol? I know you had a rough year. Did you get any sketches on? You know what, Frank? It's really wild to look back now because I did this um, – they did a video shoot with a few of the writers and Mm -hmm. I did it with Sarah Silverman and a bunch of other people. And Sarah was saying, you know, she really only had like one sketch on that she got on and, you know, other writers like Larry David, who said he never got anything on. Like, I really got a bunch of stuff on, you know, like, uh, things that I wrote with other people like that black girl, uh, that girl. Yeah. With Denny Trevance. Yeah. I remember that. You know, I got a sketch on with, um, uh, Tom Hanks and one with um, Angelica Houston and Dudley Moore. And I look back now, it's like, I can't believe I got fired. Like, I got a lot of shit on. I don't get it. <laughs> and, and let's see all the people. Like, I was fired from Saturday Night Live. and But the other people, like Sarah Silverman. David Tell. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and uh, Norm MacDonald. Larry David. Uh, oh, do uh Sure. Uh, uh, Damon Wayans. Damon Wayans. Yep. Lots of right. good people. Oh, I was there that year when he got fired, too. Because I think he got mad, and he was doing some sketch as a cop, and he, for no reason at all, played it as gay. Yes. Yeah, it wasn't really <laughs> a good thing to do. <laughs> if you that. were looking to get fired, that was the kind of thing one would actually find in the handbook <laughs> of how to get fired. <laughs> so you're a writer on a show. It's it's an iconic show. It's a kind of an up and down year. You get a lot of stuff on, but oddly enough, you're let go. And then you go back to stand up, Carol. And then I I went back to stand up. Yeah, and actually that was um, uh, I wasn't too uh upset about not going back to SNL because you know when you're on the outs there, when you're kind of not in the main club of whatever year you're there it's a little bit of a of a relief because um you know when you're when you're 
in with the in crowd, it's great. But when you're not, you really want to get as far away from there as you can. So um, it was a good time for me to concentrate on doing stand-up then. And, um, you know, but I'm still, I, you know, going back to the 40th. And, you know, I am really proud of the writers that I came up with because, you know, uh, George Meyer was a writer when I was there. Terrific writer. Um, who's yeah. a terrific, who's, you know, done so much Simpsons and great work in John Swartzwelder and Jack guy. Handy and Don Novello. And, you know, I always tease him because Robert Smigel was a, they called it an apprentice writer that year. And uh-huh. I would always tease him that um, that meant that he needed to wear goggles, safety goggles, <laughs> <laughs> whenever he was in the writer's room. But, um you know, to come up, and, and you know, uh, the guys from Kids in the Hall were oh, Bruce writers was there. my yeah. year. Yeah, Bruce McCullough. So it was really um, amazing to really work with that caliber of people that early in my career. I, I just worked with Schmeigel recently on that night of too many stars. Oh, oh, right. Is that Was that last night? Did that air? Uh, yeah, and he was there, and, and his puppet was there. <laughs> We have, we, yeah. have, we have to get Robert on the show. Triumph the dog. <laughs> so, Carrie, you, so went, funny, right? you went back to stand-up. And when, help us with the chronology, when did uh, Larry and Jerry call? Um, that was in 93. So that was um, a few years later. Um, you know, I got the luckiest break of my life in that Seinfeld when Larry and Jerry were hiring writers for the show, they never wanted anybody who had written on sitcoms before. Um, they really wanted people who had never done it because as far as Larry was concerned, if you'd written sitcoms already, you were kind of corrupted by the system and, you know, had a lot of bad rules and guidebooks in your head. So they asked me to, um, you know, come on the writing staff of, Seinfeld, it was amazing because it was also kind of right on the cusp, too, of it becoming super successful. So it wasn't, you know, it was an amazing, amazing opportunity, but the show was still kind of um, uh, finding its legs. You know, it's, it wasn't the blockbuster yet that it became um, probably two years later. So, it, you know, it was amazing. Was season five when you came on? Yes, it, it's mm-hmm. funny to look at the early Seinfeld shows. The Seinfeld Chronicles yeah. at, the be- at the very beginning. And and you see that the characters weren't down yet. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think what is so brilliant about the show, and, you know, everything to do with the show has to, came from Larry and Jerry. I mean, they were really, you know, uh, the crux of every episode and every script, you know, every script that people see on the air went through their, uh, you know, they did a draft of every script. But I think what's amazing when you look back on it now is even at the beginning when I wasn't there, but the beginning where the ratings were not good at all, I mean, the show would have been gone if if it aired now. They wouldn't give it the time to breathe and grow like they did back then just because they they did. It would never happen now. So it really is kind of a comet to me in that way because um, I don't think it would it could even have existed now. And and I remember what was so funny is like knowing Larry from the clubs, 
is when I'd watch Seinfeld and I'd go, oh, I remember him talking about that happening to him. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, like um, talking about at SNL when he um, couldn't take it anymore as a writer and left a message on Dick Ebersol's answering oh, yes. machine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, saying that he wanted to, well, telling him he wanted to quit and then going in on Monday and just trying to ignore that he had <laughs> quit on Friday. <laughs> yeah, he had thought right. about it. Right, he was a big shot and he told him off and he said, I'll never work with you again. Then he thought, oh, my God, I have a job. I can walk to work. And, <laughs> and that became an episode where George does the same thing. Right. right. Yes. And, and I remember there was an episode that got changed to Elaine, but uh, where Elaine has a boyfriend she can't stand from out of town, and and uh, she has to get him to the airport, and the alarm didn't go off, so she rushes him out and speeds her car to the airport to get rid of him. And I remember uh-huh. Larry one time talking to him and goes. Uh, uh, one time I was with this girl and uh, I, 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 I had enough and uh, and I, she was leaving the next day and I had to drive her to the airport and uh, the alarm didn't come off and uh, so I was saying, hurry, 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 let's say uh, you'll pack in the car. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, they encouraged all of you guys, all the writers, to write from, to draw from, from your own lives. And as, you, as you did with your your classic episodes. Well, it really was a great lesson um, in learning how to, you know, be in your life, but also always one step out of your life to try to see the funny situations and, um, you know, make them uh, make them comedy because, uh, you know, Larry. Um, and Jerry were so good at that of just using real things. I mean, I knew if I went into pitch that if it was something that had happened in real life and I could point to it as a real story, um, it definitely had a leg up, you know. Now, how was it getting stuff uh, submitted there uh, compared to Saturday Night Live? Well, um it was really different because, as you know, Gilbert, from SNL, so much of whether your sketch gets on uh, is determined at the read-through, you know, where everybody writes their sketches, and then Wednesday afternoon, all of the cast is around a giant table with Lauren and whoever the guest um, host is, and then all the sketches are read aloud, and whatever really works there usually gets on or has a good shot of getting on and if you read a sketch and it dies it probably won't you know be on that week so so much of it had to do with the read-through you know as opposed to Seinfeld we didn't have a classic writer's room per se like on other sitcoms I've worked on Seinfeld it was really you going into Larry and Jerry's office you know setting a time to pitch your stories you know it had to be one or two sentences pretty, you know, concise that would make them laugh right away. Um, and it we, was, We should you say know, that their, not desk, their desks faced each other. They were in the same office. Yes, their I, desks yeah. faced each other. And, you know, a lot of times I would go in and it was, you know, definitely intimidating. And, you know, I'd pitch stuff and, 
if, you know, Larry was uh, impatient or unhappy, you know, he'd kind of say, oh, I don't know, I could hear that idea on another show. That was like a big put down. You know, I could see <laughs> that on another sitcom or whatever. But, you know, if you said something like Elaine thinks the Korean manicurists are talking about her behind her back in Korean, you know, that would be something that he'd leap out of his seat and go, yes, yes, we're doing that. That's a show. You know, that's, that's a, a show. One. and. Um, and that kind of thing that happened to me in New York all the time. So um, those are the kind of things, you know, or saying George brings a deaf woman with him to a party to um, lip read his ex-girlfriend's <laughs> lips from across the room to find out why she broke up with him. You know, that was right in his wheelhouse, Jerry's wheelhouse. Yes, that's it. We're doing that, you know. And then you knew that you were kind of on your way to developing a script for the show. So it was really... You know, where SNL was really down to the table read of these kind of things, you know, Seinfeld was all about if Larry and Jerry signed off on an idea that you had, then you knew you could go off and start to write your script, you know. But if you didn't have that, if you didn't have the funny idea right away, uh, you were never going to get a script, you know. And the the lip was it the lip reader the episode where Elaine pretends she's hard, she's deaf so that she doesn't have to talk to the limo driver that also yes, came, that also yes. came from your life. Right, and this will be, you know, perfect to tell you guys because as, you know, fellow comics, you know, that idea came from all my years on the road. I always had, you know, a car service guy take me to <laughs> the airport, and it would always be at like at 6 in the morning when you just rolled out of bed, and I'd get chatty Kathy, you know, who couldn't <laughs> stop with like, how's, how's it going this morning? What are you for you? Who wouldn't stop talking and whatever signals I would, you know, give to like, would you please shut the fuck up and just drive? He would never get it. And um, so when I pitched that, you know, it was great because, you know, Elaine pretends she's deaf so that the <laughs> car service guy won't talk to her. I mean, obviously, I never did that, but it's something that I always wanted to do. Now, when you were submitting material to Jerry and Larry, did Jerry ever say to you, no, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> you suck, and I never want to talk to you again. <laughs> you have no talent. <laughs> You know, it was a little subtler than that. Um, <laughs> they, um, it was really more if you could, you know, if they weren't responding to your ideas and you could just kind of feel like, oh, I'm, I've been in this office a long time and it's getting near lunch and this is not good, nothing's landing. You know, I write a lot in my book about how Jerry and Larry, for two guys who also were just stand-up comics before that experience, they were also remarkably good bosses. I mean, they really knew how to run the show well. They were very diplomatic. You know, the thing I loved about Larry as kind of, um, you know, more of the boss in terms of show things while Jerry was on stage rehearsing was he was always a straight shooter. And you know his personality is very much like that. But he was always really diplomatic. Like, there were so many actors who came on the show who would be at the read-through and they weren't landing um, at the read-through and they had to be fired and you know most showrunners are just big pussies and they get someone else to do it and the person is gone and it's terrible and Larry was always the kind of guy like if they ha it had a fire summit it would, he would insist on it being him you know just to be a nice guy and just say hey look it's not anything personal it's just kind of not working I'll try to get you back on the show with something else and I always really admired that about him 
You forget that Gilbert worked with Larry on a on a pilot. Oh my God, Norman's right. Corner. Yes. And and to show you how bad we, this show we was, all forgot really. Yeah, how 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 <laughs> awful this show turned out is that when they were pitching Seinfeld, and uh, I think Seinfeld said, "Well, uh, it's going to be uh, written by Larry David," and they said. Isn't he the one that wrote that piece of shit for Gilbert Gottfried? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Now wait a second. What network was that for? It Norman? was, I think, Showtime or something. Wasn't it Cinemax? Oh, oh Cinemax! It was Cinemax! A, was it a yeah. Cinema- you know better than was, I. Was it a Cinemax comedy experiment? Cinemax? Yes, it yeah. was one of those experiments. Was there that- nudity involved? In <laughs> yeah, there was some nudity. Yeah, they would call a back. Door pilot Gilbert. talk about a double meaning. Gilbert wore a murky. <laughs> <laughs> oh I remember my God, it. That's right. He played a news, a Manhattan newsstand owner. Was that that was yes. the premise? And, yes. Yeah. And you shot the pilot, or you didn't shoot it? Oh, uh, we 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 shot it, but like that, like I said, they called it a backdoor pilot, meaning right. it was a special. That was like secretly like we'd like it to be a show. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and who directed it? Do you remember? Oh God, I forget the director. Robert name. Wise, I think. Oh yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I think David Lee. David Lee. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. Carol, Ang Lee. <laughs> it was Ang Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk for just a second about a couple of the great iconic episodes you wrote. The Understudy with Bette Midler, and we talked about the lip reader. And my personal favorite episode, I think, the Hamptons episode with the ugly baby. And the, the Hamptons, the ugly baby, yes, yeah. which was uh, written I, with the great Peter Melman. Peter Melman. Um, and the yeah, rock, that the really, um, um, I think the ugly baby idea um, pretty positive was Peter Melman's. Uh-huh. And then um the shrinkage thing came up. I think that was a Larry David thing. Um so, you know, what was so great about working on the show was um all of the you know, the synergy of so many creative amazing um people that you know, every episode became 10 times more than it started out to be because of um all these amazing writers that I worked with. So, um yeah, you know, I look back on the Hamptons and I always laugh, particularly at one line, because, you know, Larry especially never liked pop culture references. I mean, I knew that if you put that in a script, it would pretty much be guaranteed to be gone in the oh, final draft. And um, I remember Julia came out wearing this big, blousy, you know, unattractive sundress. And Jerry has this line, you know, he says... And then there's Maud. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, and I was so happy that Larry never took that out because uh, you know normally it would have it would have gone. But um, whenever I watched the episode, I'm always like, ah, you know, thank you, Larry, for keeping that line. It it's so funny because so many things are. I mean, well, look look at Murphy Brown. You couldn't watch one episode of that now. Yeah, oh, yeah. Because of the, 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 the references, it was just pop constant culture pop culture references. And then, oh, I remember they did actually, and it's funny because it's Seinfeld. 
they redid the Sunshine Boys with Peter Falk and Woody, Woody Allen. Allen. Yeah. And they threw in a, an, a, a reference where he goes, well, I'm going to go home and watch Seinfeld. I love it. Oh, I don't really. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember that. Wow. Yeah. There's a scene in the fortune cookie, the Billy Wilder movie, when the, 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 uh, the, this, the guy that's spying on Jack Lemmon says, OK, I'm going to go home and watch Batman, which was a big cultural yeah. reference in 1966. And, and they mm-hmm. redid the man that came to dinner uh, and they, uh, for TV and they threw in a reference to Dan Quayle. So it's oh, like, yeah. So like yeah. a year or two later, people are going, well, "What is that?" So, yeah. Car- so Carol, <laughs> right. t- tell us, the, tell us your favorite Seinfeld episode that you wrote, and w- and your favorite episode that you didn't write, because I'm curious. Well, um, I really probably would have to say uh, the Rye is probably my favorite Seinfeld one. episode. Um, you know, mostly because, too, when we shot it, um, they'd never spent, I think they spent a million dollars on the episode, which probably in terms of TV production today is not a lot, but it was like a big deal back then, and we shot it at the at Paramount lot, you know, to do the snow and the handsome cab. Right, and, right. And, the beef, and all the, that kind the of stuff. The beef arena. The beef arena, which, um, you know, uh, I have a couple of stories about that because uh, – it has a big storyline in the rye about price, you know, what was then called Price Club, uh, which is now Costco. But, you know, I'm still a devoted fan. I love it. And about <laughs> how you buy too much. And there's, you know, you're always left with so much left over. And this, it always made me laugh. That giant can you could buy of beefaroni, you know. <laughs> and then we wanted to use that with Kramer feeds, you know, the beefaroni to his horse, Rusty, which is my horse at camp but anyway um so uh chef boyardee wouldn't let us use beefaroni so they made us change it to beefarino hilarious and um the prop guy gave me that big can as a souvenir when we um wrapped shooting which i kept so proudly until i moved and a mover thought it was an empty can and threw it out uh it broke my heart to read that in the book I know that was really a super drag, but um, <laughs> I, I would say that that's probably um, my favorite episode. And I know it's um, one of Jerry's favorites, so that means a lot to me. And I think of the ones that I um, that I didn't write that I admire. I mean, and he won an Emmy for it. I think deservedly so. You know, Larry writing that the contest. You know, the masturbation yes. episode. I mean. You know, there's nothing as brilliant as that. It holds up today like anything else. And, you know, it was so edgy and so amazing when that aired. And that to this day, you know, it still never says masturbation in it, you know, the word masturbation or anything right, like right. that. That it's so clever and so real. And it really, I think, summarizes the brilliance of Larry David. I mean, I really can't say enough about how much I respect you know his talent and what a great person he is. I'm, that that shot of Kramer coming in and just slamming the money down and saying, "I'm out," <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just ab- absolutely wonderful. My memory of that is that that was the episode that sort of I, I could be wrong about this. I mean, the show was a, a ascendant, but that that was the episode that that really turned it up a notch. Yeah, I you know I wasn't there in then, but popularity. I think it was kind of cumulative. I remember Jerry 
sending me, you know, I would say emails, but they weren't around then, um, you know, just saying, like, I've noticed people in the village voice are talking about Seinfeld, like, in comments, you know, like, it still had people that were taking to it and were seeing, uh, you know, that it was different and funny, even though it wasn't tearing up the ratings, people, you know, people were liking it. And I think, um, you know, I said it earlier, but it's amazing that the show stayed on because if it were today, it really would have gotten a quick chance and then it'd be out. Well, it's no kind matter of who like liked it. with movies that changed too. There used to be these little movies that would be out for a certain amount of weeks and then they would build and become blockbusters. Yeah, yeah, now, exactly. Now in the opening night, they go, okay, didn't do it, make any money, get rid of it. Or they don't right. even get released at all. They, oh, go, yeah. they go to DVD or they go to now, I guess, Netflix or... Yeah, mm-hmm. And then you went from Seinfeld to another television show that Gilbert and I love, The Larry Sanders Show. And that yes. was a different experience altogether because, if I'm not mistaken, it was your first writer's room? Yeah, it was my first um, kind of classic sitcom writer's room where, um, and it's really the way that I kind of still like to work today where writers kind of write their own drafts and then that goes to the writer's room and then everybody um, kind of rewrites it together, you know, um, after a table read, which is always fair, like what worked and what didn't work. And um, I think that, you know, really showed me kind of the style of of sitcom writing that I like now. I mean, you know, it's funny when I've worked on sitcoms, you can always tell the comics who became writers versus the writer writers, because if we're filming live and a joke doesn't work, you know, all the comics who are writers are immediately like, well, great. We'll come up with a few different, you know, choices because it didn't work, you know, where writers can be more precious about it. Like, Oh, well, we'll sweeten it, you know, in post and all that kind of thing. Whereas the comics are like, if it didn't work with the audience, you know, we're not keeping it. We're going to come up with something else. I, I, I experience that when I'm on a show and I'll, they'll have a joke in the script and I say it and it doesn't get a laugh and they go, well, you can make it funny. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I kind of already did that. Yeah. I tried. <laughs> And it didn't work. So, yeah. What's the plan B? Can you, can you tell us real quickly about opening for Frank Sinatra, Carol? Oh, my God. Opening for Frank Sinatra. That really, you know, as long as I've been around, and I can say that because, uh, Gilbert, you might be the person who's been around longer than me. Um, <laughs> you know, that still is like the high point of all my years in show business because, you know, I really, um, I was having a really tough time during that, you know, as a stand-up, I, I was getting really shitty gigs. I wasn't doing great. I got this big come on by this new agent who was like, I'm going to get you three times the money you're making now, much better clubs, you know, come over and work with me and it's going to be blue skies, you know, the whole song and dance. And like cut to six months later and he's literally booking me at ground round comedy nights on the Jersey Turnpike. Like, it was <laughs> horrible. And, you know, you're trying to do comedy and people are, you're hearing squashed peanut shells on the floor. And I kept saying to this guy, like, where are my great gigs? Where's all the stuff you promised me? And he was like, I'm working on Frank, you know? And I'm like, Frank? Like, 
what Frank Stallone? Because like, <laughs> what is going on here? And lo and behold, like, I get a call. I was working on a cruise ship, and you know, in those days, if you were working on a cruise ship, you know, one of your parents croaked or your house burnt <laughs> down. And it was um, my agent going, I got you opening for Frank Sinatra. He had some weird, strange connection to Jilly Rizzo, who was, you know, Frank Sinatra's manager. And I got to open for him. And it really is such a highlight of my life because not only was the crowd amazing and great, but he was such a gentleman. Frank Sinatra was like the classiest, nicest guy. He would bring me out for a bow after my set, which, you know, at wow. that time, a lot of celebrities wouldn't even put their opening act on the marquee. I mean, I know this happened to Bill Maher. Um, you know, I won't say who the celebrity was, but her talent is supreme. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice touch. <laughs> so there so you go. You had a good experience. And, and I'll just throw out two names and then we'll let you go. And that's, uh, you worked with Bob Hope and Milton Berle. Yes, I did. On um, Bob Hope had one of his young comedian specials <laughs> on NBC. And um, he um, put me on, uh, you know, I was on the show. But it was very sad because it was really, you know, a little past, I think, where Bob Hope should have been performing. Because they said, come up with something at the end that, you know, a line where um, a joke you can do with Bob. So at the time, I was doing a joke that was like, you know, things are going great. Um, I just made a three-picture deal, you know, two eight-by-tens and one wallet size, you know, a photo mat or whatever. And um, I did the joke, and Bob Hope turned to me and said, uh, well, good for you. You know, I- <laughs> <laughs> like not getting it at all. I was like, "Oh." Did you keep the cue cards as a souvenir from the Bob Hope? I do experience? have those cue cards. Yes, it's I'm looking wonderful. at them right now. That's wonderful. Um, but anyway, this was so much fun. Go, uh, please tell all of your loyal listeners to get my book, yes. "How to Succeed oh. in Business Without Really Crying." We'll all these stories and more. Lessons from a life in comedy, Carol Leifer. Yes. And Carol, we'll have you back another time, and we'll talk about all the stuff we didn't get to. Like I love it. Soupy sales, soupy sales, and the Oscars, and Jay Leno, and, and tonight yes. Carson, and Please. everything else, and Dave Boone, and he says hello, by the way. Love Dave. Our Boone. mutual friend. So yes. thanks for doing it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Well, I'm Gilbert Gottfried. I'm here with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and this has been another episode of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast where we've been talking to acclaimed television writer and comedian and the author of the new book, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying, Lessons from a Life in Comedy, Carol Leifer. If you like listening to comedy... Try watching it on the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleisinger. Schleisinger, I've been friends with her for 10 years. One of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me. 
takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore. Because it's here. And it's funny. And I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.